Method to the Madness is next. You're listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm Lisa Kiefer, and today I'm interviewing Jay Harmon, President, CEO, and Chief Inventor at PAC Scientific. He's also the author of The Shark's Paintbrush, a look at biomimicry. Welcome to the program, Jay. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm very interested in biomimetics and biomimicry. You know, you've written a book called The Shark's Paintbrush. Mm-hmm. It's in three parts. You First, you talk about the potential of biomimetics right. in business, technology, and in solving our climate change problems mm-hmm. and other forces that are causing stress on the planet. Okay, in the second part, you give these amazing examples of creatures from fungus to sharks mm-hmm. and what they can provide. And then your third part, which is very fascinating to me, is the business side of all this. How do you bring these great ideas to the marketplace? So I want to talk about all of that and also about you. So first of all, you're Australian. Tell me about your life and how you got into all this. Well, you know, I think I had the best life possible for who I am. I grew up beside the beach in Australia. Which side? uh, The left-hand side, Perth, which is the uh, most remote city in the whole British Empire. And uh, the nearest city to it is 1,700 miles away. So in a small population, kind of a country town vibe, and an absolutely pristine coastline, warm water and clear water. So I grew up in the water pretty much from the time I was 10. I just became fascinated by everything to do with nature, and uh, school was of no interest to me at all. You went to a Jesuit school. I went to Jesuit school. It's not and, easy uh, to uh, not, yeah, not focus. Uh, on yeah, well, Jesuit that's school. right. They, they were fairly keen that I focused and uh, had uh, persuasive methods, but I was able to resist most of them. <laughs> I was interested in history, and particularly prehistory and how humans have learned to develop skills. And of course, humans come from nature. We are nature. We're part of nature. We forget that a lot of the time. As we evolved uh, our societies out of nature, we uh, copied how nature does things. And I was very interested in that as a, as a boy. And at the same time, noticing how nature actually does things, how to fish swim, because they're much better at swimming than I am. And I was fascinated by that, especially when I started trying to catch fish underwater. You used to spear fish. I used to, yeah, I loved it. It was just uh, my favorite thing as a kid. And uh, it was a very new sport then. This is in the early 60s. And uh, skin diving had really only just been invented, and almost nobody did it. And I had a broomstick with a piece of sharpened wire on it, and I (laughs) came around trying to catch fish. But I noticed how just how wonderful fish were at moving through the water with no fuss. And I used to daydream about that when I was in school and when I went to bed at night. I try and imagine how I could catch them, how I could be faster and, you know, what what was actually happening. And one day I noticed that it just struck me that seaweeds, although they're quite fragile, managed to survive beautifully in even wild storms and huge waves. And I found that quite fascinating. And over a period of time, I noticed that all these weeds are changing their shape to a particular pathway, even though it looks chaotic. And it turns out that's the path of least resistance. So least drag. So these seaweeds could hang on just even in wild storms. And so then I just I worked out over a long time and over a lifetime, that's the archetypal shape of movement in nature. And nature uses it almost exclusively. Is this a spiral you talk about yeah, in the book? Yeah, these swirling shapes, which happen to be virtually identical to the whirlpool in your bathtub when you pull the plug. That's a f- virtually frictionless device. It's nature's mechanism for moving fluids and energy. It uses it everywhere because it's almost frictionless. Unlike humans who 
really have huge problems with friction. That's where we use all our energy. We're trained to overcome friction and resistance and drag. So we use huge amounts of energy and create huge amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere trying to overcome friction. Was that your eureka moment? It was. I wasn't able to define it as that when I was a kid, but I was just fascinated by it. And I was building pretty um, rough-looking canoes at that time out of corrugated iron and so forth. And, And I started beating them into shape with a hammer to try and replicate these shapes I was seeing in seaweed and in the way fish move and and these canoes seemed to work better so I was totally hooked and and that just became my obsession really my fascination and I saw it everywhere and then did you have any interaction with aboriginal people they make their own boats and of course exactly a lot of native people have very little when I was a kid but as an adult I joined the department of fisheries and wildlife and I ranged all over western Australia and the outback it's my territory was a third of the size of the United States And so I came across all sorts of populations of indigenous people and their culture and uh, as well as different wildlife ecosystems from the tropics to to the um, Mediterranean. Of course, going to Jesuit school, which had a focus on spirituality and religion, I, I noticed that the same shapes that I saw, all these spiraling shapes were in the iconography of the Catholic Church. No priest was able to tell me what that was about, but they're everywhere. You know, these curls and spirals were in the artwork of missiles and Bibles and statues and pictures. And, um, and the solar system. And the solar system, of course, exactly. And, uh, and since then, of course, I've noticed that um, these spirals are through all religions of the world. And in fact, it's the most common archetypal symbol for creation, the mystery of life, fertility, and intelligence oh, through really all of the world's cultures, all the shamanic cultures, every major religion on earth. This is the symbol. It happens to be the only path, well, almost only path that nature uses to move anything. It's order within chaos. You know, we think of the universe as chaotic, but we have this order. We have this spiral that turns up everywhere in all sorts of living things, the shape of our heart muscle, the curls of our hair, the curls of our eyelashes. Uh, yeah, the cochlear of our ears. Mm-hmm. We see it in the phyllotaxis of uh, organisms. Every wave we see, every ripple we see on the ocean has the geometry of whirlpools in it. And yet we, a human nature is to make a straight line between points and exactly. the opposite. Well, of course, at school, what do we learn? That because the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, then if you want to use the least energy going from, say, one end of a football field to the other end of a football field, you've you got to walk straight. Because if you go around the edge of the football field, you're going to be doing a lot more steps. It's going to take a lot more energy. Well, that's all making perfect sense, and our entire industrial world is built on that premise. And yet nature, not since the dawn of time, has shown one single example of ever moving anything in a straight line. It always follows these spiraling pathways, always. And in every case, nature uses less energy and less materials than humans do. And they don't create any output that is damaging. Well, that's right. Well, of course, nature is always creating the con- it's a closed system, conditions right? conducive to life, right? And there's zero waste in nature. Waste, from nature's vocabulary, you could eliminate the term waste and call it resource. Which reminds me, I saw a film that you were featured highly in Elemental, and you talk about the optimism of nature. Right. Nature is not just a survivor. It's amazing. No matter what happens, it comes back. You know, we can spray DDT or set off a nuclear weapon and uh, everything's devastated, incinerated, you name it. Come back a little bit later and it's all burgeoning with life again. And we put down concrete and and grass will come up through the concrete. We build a um, city of New York and if we left it 
200 years from now, you, you would see the whole thing overgrown with life and wild animals and organisms everywhere. So nature is completely optimistic. It puts out millions of spores from each fungus. It puts out half a million eggs in one lobster. You know, you can wipe out all of the crabs on the east coast of America and just leave a couple and come back in a few years and that population will have recovered. That's pretty optimistic. It's amazing. We might disappear. In fact, it's inevitable when you think about it. 99.99% of all species that have ever existed on Earth are now extinct. We're just one in that succession. We've got our little moment in history. So we will disappear at some point, but life will go on. Nature will go on without blinking an eye. Well, uh, in the epilogue of your book, there's a beautiful scene where you're sailing in this very remote area. Right, that's right, in the Indian Ocean. And what you discovered? Well, I was sailing uh, about 400 miles from Java, right out in the Indian Ocean, and the water was 12,000 feet deep, and not on any shipping lane. It's an area nobody goes to, and uh, not even tourist yachts. And in the distance, I noticed what looked like an island and uh, there shouldn't have been an island there. And I looked at, on my charts, no island, 12,000 feet of water, no shipping lane. It sailed up to this. And as I got closer, I saw birds were flying around and I saw trees, just very small, young coconut palms. Sailed right up to it and it was an island made completely of garbage. And there was fishing nets and broken dinghies and sea containers that were barely floating and logs that had been washed down from rivers. And this is the late 80s. This is the late 80s. Before they discovered the huge plastic island. Yeah, yeah. this was unheard of then, right? So this thing had weeds and vegetation on it and these young palm trees and there were crabs running around and there were birds and schools of fish under it. You know, and this whole thing was a, a product of human negligence, if you like. And then it struck me that From nature's point of view, this was an opportunity, and it had created this amazing living argonaut that was floating across the ocean. That's pretty optimistic. Oh, it was fantastic. So (laughs) that really gave me heart. And, you know, we see a lot of bad news in the press, especially now, more and more, and we wonder if uh, our planet's going to be worth living on in another few decades. Right. And you look at all the stresses. They've happened at different times in history, but never at the same time. Well, exactly. Or at the size. Yes. Staggering. In the last million years, nothing like that. So we're, we're really on a precipice here. But I also am totally optimistic because we've reached a point in time where we have the technology and the ideas and the ability to look at nature as mentor to solve all these problems. We have that ability. She's clean, green, and sustainable. And if you think of the 10 million species on Earth today, these species, every one of them has solved the problems that we face. And they have done it sometimes under incredible stress. Incredible stress. And that caused their evolution, Extraordinary. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. I mean, you just got to look at these deep sea vents in the middle of the ocean, you know, miles deep in the ocean. And you've got the sulfuric mass coming out of these little volcanic chutes. There's no oxygen. It's a completely hostile environment. How could there possibly be life there? And yet that water is teeming with life. Hmm. Unbelievable, without oxygen and at very high temperatures. Okay, so let's go back mm, yeah. to, you know, in, in your boyhood and you, how did you get out into the world with these ideas? Well, uh, all my spare time as a kid was either in the water or making stuff. And when I left school, you know, I'd rebuild old cars and get them working and, you know, just anything. I joined the Fisheries and Wildlife Department and became a captain um, on patrol and research vessels and spent 12 years right in, sometimes you'd call it the teeth of nature, you know, survived a 100-mile-an-hour hurricane at sea on a 
on a 50-foot patrol boat. And lots of adventures and, and seeing... Or the sea snake adventure The sea snakes book. and I, so many encounters with snakes, you know. Yeah. You know, it's got uh, nine of the worst or the most poisonous snakes in the world of the top ten. Being in the outback, I saw plenty and plenty of varieties and lots of adventures. But I also noticed that uh, the environment was... Even though there were a lot of folks out there trying to protect the environment in love with nature, feeling the pain of nature being destroyed and making heroic efforts to protect it. With a stroke of a political pen, a wildlife reserve could be turned into a mine site. Even with lawsuits and everything else, it was a losing battle. When I first left the fisheries department, fisheries and wildlife, I went in search of myself. I thought, well, who am I in all of this? You know, the the sort of archetypal question that most of us end up with at some point. So I, I went to university and studied comparative religion and psychology and economics and economics and I did that for a while and then I went off around the world and uh, studied with different mystics met interesting people in different uh, Christian faiths and then went to to Asian gurus and just really really engaged myself full time in that inquiry for several years uh, to the point that I completely ran out of money and I ended up back in Australia and I had to make some money quickly and it was a recession at the time and there was really not much opportunity for a um, a past fisheries and wildlife officer right so I started a company because uh, I didn't know enough not to <laughs> and uh, started a company called ERG Australia, thinking that I'll bring these ideas from nature into the industrial world. A couple of days after I founded the company and dreamt up the name, bumped into an engineer who had an idea for an electronics product. So I thought, well, let's do that. We'll make a few bucks, and then we can do the nature-based stuff. That electronics product turned out to be pretty successful, and uh, we had the um, one of the first two so-called high-technology companies in Australia. Right place, right time. This was 1982. We formed the company. Two years to the day, we put it on the stock market. It was enormously successful. It was just meteoric rise, and uh, everybody that was involved got very rich very quickly. Within a, a few weeks, I think six weeks, there was a hostile takeover of the company, and I was out which was a bit of a shock and a really interesting learning curve. Okay, the world of business works quite differently from my um, thoughts about ethics and and spirituality. But you left with enough money to do what you wanted to do. Oh, yeah. I I left with a, a nice lot of money, and I'd built a sailboat over the previous two years. So I took off sailing around Asia. And that was a wonderful time. I, had, I just had the best time. But um, So I decided to try and tell the world how to adapt these technologies of nature, these strategies of nature, into the marketplace. But did they listen to you? You weren't an engineer by trade, right? right. No, nobody listened. In fact, I was considered extremely fringe and eccentric. I designed a boat called the Wild Thing which is much more efficient than uh, any boat in the world today, the best-performing small craft in the world. And it won awards and, you know, all sorts of articles. And a great boat, extremely safe, third of the weight of anything else like it, a lot less energy. But it was so different that the uh, boating industry, which is extremely conservative, the boating industry rejected it, hands down. And yet the public really loved it. When I put it in boat shows, it won first prize at boat shows and... uh, you know, people that had never had boats before bought them. But it was such a struggle. At the end, I, I sold the business. I moved on to other things. I thought, well, there's got to be an easier thing to do. And I thought, well, what about propellers? What if we made a better propeller? Nature's really good at 
propulsion. So I made a propeller based on a frozen whirlpool. Imagine you pull that plug from the bath and you've got that whirlpool. If you could freeze it and rotate it, you're going to create the same flow patterns that nature does. So I did that. I created this propeller and it worked really well. And then I thought, well, if I've got a propeller, I've got a pump and a fan and a turbine. So I started adapting this approach to all those things and took them out to the marketplace, wrote to the, uh, to the CEOs of 21 Fortune 500 companies, got 17 interviews, did presentations, great reception. People were very interested at the CEO level. And they said, well, work with our, our engineers. So we were passed down to the engineers, and the engineers really didn't know where to start because this was completely inside-out thinking. And it was at a time where America's starting to lose its jobs to Asia. And so these engineers are all doing 60-hour days just trying to compete to keep their jobs, and they didn't have the background in what I was doing. So there was really no way to interface effectively. So out of all those companies, not a single one actually took up the technology, though we did get a few offers to buy all of the patents. But we figured, mm, well, under these circumstances, it's probably just going to get squashed or, or left on the shelf because we were seen as competitive. So we walked away from that. And then, you know, we were running very short on funds. So um, and a few friends were, and family were excited by what we were doing. So they helped us a little bit. Out of this came a product that would uh, get you on the map by cleaning water in cities. Mm-hmm. Your mixer, which um, was also based on this right. spiraling shape. Yeah, well, once we had a propeller and a turbine and a fan and all that sort of thing, we had this frozen whirlpool, and it's a very beautiful-looking thing. And the original one is six inches high, four inches in diameter. It's actually in the permanent collection of MoMA in New York now. It's gorgeous, right? It's like something you might have picked from the garden, and it works so well. And we wondered, okay, well, how are we going to earn some income from this? How are we going to pay for staff, etc.? And we had a water engineer on staff. He helped us, and he, he came to us one day, and he said, well, you know, the municipal water storage system has real problems with water quality, because these great big tanks, you know, they might be 10 million gallon tank, you know, it's a football field 30 feet deep, have the sun beating on them, so the water at the top heats up. And the disinfectants that municipalities put into this water, the byproducts often are nitrates, which are fertilizers. So if you've got warm water and nitrates, you get biological events, not good. So then municipalities have to tip in a whole lot more disinfectant. And it's all stagnant, too. It's and just it's stagnant there, water because this goes yeah. up and down because the pipe that fills the tank is the same pipe that they draw the water out of the tank from, and it's right at the bottom. So there's no mixing going on. So, so he said, well, if we put in the, our little mixer, this tiny little thing, we could, and what we do is turn it completely into a ring vortex which is almost frictionless. It's an amazing device. Nature uses them everywhere. The atmosphere, all the thermals that birds fly on, the oceans are full of these. This room is full of them. So this is how nature mixes. A tornado or a hurricane are actually the center spouts of a ring vortex. So if you take this frozen whirlpool and rotate it in a tank or a pond or a lake, you're actually creating exactly the same thing. So this tiny thing, six inches high, we put it on a little motor, And we ran it with 300 watts. And you imagine you put that in the middle of a football field 30 feet deep. It's not going to make any difference at all, right? It's not going to have any effect. And yet, it completely did the job. We went off to to municipalities and they said, oh, yeah, sure. 
<laughs> you know. Show me. <laughs> yeah, you're smoking the wrong stuff. So eventually, um, the folks at Redwood City kindly uh, lent us a tank to demonstrate. So we put it in the tank. It worked incredibly well, uh, which they verified. And we then set up a company around it, Pax Water. Okay. Yeah. And it was, a, it was a tough sell to begin with. But now um, we're in nearly 1,300 of these installations in America, Australia, and the Middle East. So it's aerating the water. It's decreasing the amount of chemicals in the water. Greatly decreasing the chemicals by about 85%. That's amazing. <clears throat> it um, certainly decreases the energy of any attempts that people might have had before to try and rectify the situation. And it is 100% effective in 100% of applications. So it's, it's pretty cool, yeah. And the company has the reputation for that now, so it's no longer difficult to sell. But anyway, that company's done well, and now it's got another six or five products out there. So <clears throat> we're addressing all sorts of things to do with water quality. But you also had this other incredibly interesting product. You looked at some of the um, environmental stresses around the world, the air quality in Beijing, the air quality in places like Denver where the air right. is just sitting <clears throat> stagnantly. Exactly. This is working on a very similar principle. If you think about it, the atmosphere is full of these. When we see the birds circling pelicans and, and condors and so forth, cruising around in higher altitudes, they're cruising on these huge ring vortex, these big upwellings. What we've been able to demonstrate is that we can accelerate those upwellings. In most of the cities in the world, even in the cleanest cities in the world, we're putting out a lot of gunk. The cleanest cities typically are windy cities. It just means the gunk's been spread over our neighbors, and we don't see it. But places like Beijing and Mexico City and Tehran and, and uh, L.A. and Denver have mountains near them that form a basin. And what happens is at certain times of the year, there's no air change in that basin. And so it fills up with gunk, and you end up with different densities of air as you go up in the atmosphere, and they're called inversion layers. We've all seen what Beijing looks like. It's shocking. What if you could penetrate that inversion layer and break it? Like create wind? Create an updraft that actually goes through that. And that's what every other city has. And that's what New York has. That's what San Francisco. They have upwellings and then crosswinds that distribute all that pollution. To me, this is not the ultimate fix. No, because that goes elsewhere. Yeah, it's still pollution. So yeah. we have to deal with the pollution. And But in the short term, you have this huge population of Beijing that has chronic health problems. In fact, I think the consensus right now is that pollution is going to cause more deaths in Beijing than any other cause. So in the short term, we can, we believe, and I think we've proved it well enough, break that inversion layer in Beijing and let the wind disperse their rubbish over other parts of the country and the ocean just like every other city in the world. I have to emphasize again, that's not the long-term solution. But it does buy us time buys to us time solve these and problems. and it relieves these people. We're very confident that we can do something of use So there. there's not one up yet in China? No. It's got kind of in the, to the political morass at the moment. Uh, we've also been approached by people from Tehran. Well, of course, we can't trade with Iran. Um, that may change with yeah. these uh, new new events that are happening because Tehran has got a huge problem. And the other thing is that we don't see this as um, a way to pay our bills. This is more, you know, a humanitarian right. thing. 
but we've put it out there and people know about it. So I thought it was pretty exciting. It is. When I, I think heard so. About it. And where it gets even more exciting, I think, is in many parts of the world, like the um, Middle East around the um, Arabian Gulf or the Persian Gulf, depending on which side you live on, you get incredibly high temperatures and incredibly high humidity and no rain. Can you affect that humidity and get it to precipitate? Well, the way nature does it is with these upwellings. And there are whole lots of ways to get that rain to fall out. Because the Chinese right now do cloud seeding. A lot of countries do, but the Chinese have a whole squadron of their air force that does nothing but cloud seeding to cause rain. And they use silver iodide. It works. But it's very expensive, and they don't get a huge result from it but they get enough to justify it. There are better ways to do it. Nature doesn't put silver iodide up there. Nature causes precipitation. We think the same technology can absolutely make a difference in high humidity climates. Are there any other products on the horizon that are you're very excited about? Oh, yes. Are... There's two in particular. One is that the fans, just air-moving fans, use 22% of the world's electrical energy. Computer server farms run by Google and Apple and all these folks are using about 2.5% of all of the nation's electrical energy. And about 40% of that goes into cooling fans just to get rid of the heat from these silicon chips that are you know, operating at very high temperatures. We've taken the best fans in the world today and applied the biomimicry approach, and the state of California funded this research. And we took the two best fans in the world, and one of them we reduced the energy by 37%, and the other one 47%. Now, that's it's very significant. Very substantial, yeah. That's billions of dollars of energy a year just in the U.S. that can be saved. Refrigeration and air conditioning use about 30% of the world's electrical energy. Nature does refrigeration very well. Every hurricane, every tornado, every whirlpool is actually a refrigerator. It's a heat engine. But if you could catch a hurricane, put it in a bottle, and accelerate it to, let's say, twice the speed of three times the speed of sound, you've got right there an incredibly powerful refrigeration system. And that's what we've done. You've done that? Yes, in server farms. And it's using somewhere around two-thirds less energy than the best systems in the world today. But it's able to take these systems that are currently operating around 80 degrees centigrade and take them and have them operate at 40 degrees centigrade. And electronics always work much more efficiently as they get colder. So this is, this is game-changing. This is a very big deal. Well, we need game-changers, yeah, we really as do. you know. Is it going to be enough soon enough? We came to the conclusion a lot of years ago that it totally comes down, in this modern world of ours, to the bottom line. Companies are not altruistic. The shareholders want their pound of flesh. And a board of directors have one mandate, to get the shareholders' money without hurting their companies, right? So what we have to do is prove that it affects the bottom line. And that's what we've really focused on, and we can show that over and over and over again. So there's not a lot of appetite in big corporations to be highly inventive or take a lot of risk. And smaller companies are not well capitalized and don't have market share. Our refrigeration technology is phenomenal. We can show it to anybody. We've got the prototypes, we've got the patent. We've got eight patents on this. This is incredible game-changing technology. There is no money. So how do you overcome that challenge? There has to be a new instrument. If you go to Europe, you can get all sorts of government grants. If you've got an idea, you can go and get $50,000, $100,000 to build your prototypes and do some work with universities, etc. But there's no money to take it from there on. America's got plenty of companies here 
you know, I mean, there's a half a dozen I could list that could easily take this on and handle its development and marketing. And we'd love to support those companies to become world leaders in this new technology. But to get from where we are to those people wanting to take it on, there's the gap. Because it's great to have it in the laboratory, but there's a development cost to get it to a manufactured item. And the companies that are out there now are not making their money from doing that kind of transition. They're making their money from buying cheaply from China, so, packaging it well, and marketing it well. So what has to be done? Tax concessions for companies to pick up these kinds of technologies. So, so, government it, so can it's drive a government. That. Government can totally drive innovation. But in a politically contentious world, nobody wants to take a chance. We've had several grants some of them, it costs us more to get the grant than the grant is worth. Well, we don't have time for those kinds of cycles. We do not have cycles. time for this. So we and, have to get um, out of the political stuff. Is it going to take some kind of catastrophe? or? We're in catastrophe. President Obama has said he's devoting the rest of his presidency to climate change. All sorts of people are standing up now mm -hmm. and saying, we have to do this. The Pope, fantastic. What a great thing that he would yeah. even take that on, right? Yeah. While there are vested interests muddying the field and heads in the sand, it's difficult for government to be really sensible and proactive with this. So then I think you have to turn to the people. You have in to some turn way, to the people. democratizing <clears throat> investment, some, something. That's right. Uh, yeah. This refrigeration technology, one or two million dollars would be sufficient to get it through that transition. I love that scene in the movie with um, you and Francesca and this hedge fund guy's in there and he goes, you know, Everything looks great, but, you know, they have a real problem with a family business. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> that's such a great scene. It's just exactly. you two. We can't sell that, you know. If you, if you really look, you'll find the thing that really calls to you. It's got to be in something that enthuses you, something that captures your imagination. So that's all I did. I just love being out in nature. And if you devote yourself to that, even if you don't make a huge amount of money, and by the way, your chances are you're going to have a richer life anyway by doing that because you're probably going to excel at it. But even if you don't make a lot of money, you're going to have a wonderful life. Yeah. So what, what, where do you want people to go to learn more about you, your company? If anybody's really interested in biomimicry, asknature.org is an incredible resource. It's got really probably thousands of instances now of how nature is doing things that we can learn from and, and adapt and uh, Biomimicry 3.8, it's part of the same group as Janine Benyus's uh, group. And then Pack Scientific. Francesca yeah. and I founded this in 1997. Mm -hmm. So, so they, they can reach you on that website? That's right. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show. I could have talked all day <laughs> about this stuff. I think it's incredibly important. So thanks again. Thank you.